Okay, I'm here with Callie Steffes, who is the founder of Chalkpoint Capital, and she has a fascinating story that we're going to learn about today. Let's go to Chalkpoint. What is it? Sure. Um, so Chalkpoint is a private investment firm um, focused on sort of sourcing off-the-run esoteric special situation investments. Um, so we like the things everyone else doesn't like and sort of like to get our hands dirty and partner with great management teams to build businesses. Awesome. Let's come back to that, but let's go back a little bit more. Where are you from and what is, it, what is the life story? Sure. So I grew up in the Midwest, outside of Chicago, in a big sort of suburban town. Um, I have two sisters and my parents and I had a pretty normal childhood. Um, I would say the, probably the biggest different thing is I was an athlete. Um, so I was a gymnast and I was in the gym 25-30 hours a week from when I was pretty little. Um, How little? Um, well, you know, I actually started gymnastics late. I was a swimmer and a soccer player, and my parents put me in gymnastics to get stronger for swimming and soccer, and I fell in love with it. Um, so I think I was eight or nine when I started, um, and then wow. sort of was off to the races from there. And, okay, let's go into that more. 25 or 30 hours a week, what, like, how was that actually structured? And was, for example, when you were 10 years old, and it's October, what is your typical week like with school and yeah. gymnastics? It's school and gymnastics. I mean, that was really all it was. Um, and I was fortunate that I loved doing it. So, you know, I'd be in the gym four or five hours a day after school um, and then sort of back at it the next so day. So 3.30 until 8.30? Yeah, yeah, just about. That is crazy. So I did competitive golf, and okay. I had a very similar schedule, which is out at 3 o'clock, on the course at 3.30, you play till sundown. Rinse and repeat, play on the weekend. During the summer, you're playing two rounds a day. Um, what did you get out of that experience, doing it for that many years, that many hours from that young? I think one of the unique things about gymnastics is people think you want to score perfect 10. So it's like all about sort of perfection. But what people don't see is what happens until you actually like learn that skill. You fall on your face over and over and over again. So I think just sort of a persistence and a resilience and a willingness to sort of keep at something even when it seems like you're never going to succeed. Um, which so getting I think, good at falling on your face. Yes, getting good at falling <laughs> on your face. I'm very good at that, I think, or was for a while. Um, but yeah, no, it's, um, it's, a, it's an awesome sport. Um, the discipline and sort of focus that you need to be successful in gymnastics is, I think it's one of those unique sports where like, you can never check out for a minute or you're going to fall off the balance beam or slip off the bars or whatever it might be. Is When you go forward into your career, are there certain moments when you can actually point to your training as a gymnast and you realize, like, that was a really difficult time in my career or my life. But after you got through it, then you can, then you realize, like, wait a second, like, the reason why I got through that is because I put in 30 hours a week since I was nine years old and that it's okay to fall on your face. Do you have some of those moments in, in, in your career when that training got you through it? Yeah, I would say starting off in investment banking. Um, <laughs> I don't think that there could be a better example than that. Um, you know, when you're in the office 80 or 90 hours a week and you're getting something put on your desk at 10 o'clock and you've got to crank through it, you know, through well into the sort of morning hours, um, just knowing sort of how to pace yourself and how to push through and knowing there's always a little bit more in the gas tank, even if you feel like there isn't. Um, I would say those two experiences are, are pretty similar in a lot of ways. Um, so I think it started off there. And, and listen, I think working in finance, especially as a woman, is tough. So there's a lot of moments throughout your career where you just have to know that, you know, 
going back again after you get the no is what you have to do and not being scared to do that. Do you think that the, so can you dive deep, a little bit deeper into that in terms of not being scared to do something? Um, and maybe starting from the gymnastics, like what, was there a particular type of, uh, this is showing how little I know about gymnastics, a exercise, or I don't know what you call it. An event. An event. There skill. we go. Was, a, uh, was there an event or a skill that you were just really bad at and that you were even maybe even scared of you, like the balance beam? And walk me through how you developed that skill for yeah. that event. I was fortunate that I wasn't didn't have a lot of fear, and that's something that happens to gymnasts. As you sort of get older, you start to realize, like, wow, I'm jumping in the air and flipping twice <laughs> and landing here? on my feet, and I just fell on my face, and why am I doing this? This is crazy. Um, so you do sometimes develop certain fears as, as you especially get a little older. Um, the biggest thing that sort of happened for me in that regard was letting go of the bars to do a dismount, and all of a sudden I just wouldn't let go. And you can really hurt yourself, as you can imagine, if you're like getting ready to let go, and all of a sudden you just yeah. freeze and you slam your body back in the bar. Um, and and I had to work through that, and it was hard um, because you can get in your head and you can convince yourself, you know, of a lot of things. Is this from a, a two bar? So from like the top bar, yeah. You know, when you have to like yeah. let go and you flip twice and you land on your feet yeah. and you do a dismount. Yeah. Last week for me. Yeah. No worries. Totally. Cool. No worries. So then, was what would happen if you held on? Is there the time where you like hit the, the lower bar, or is just from the high bar you're just like flat on your face or on your back? You like slam your body, like you just as you can imagine, you have a lot of momentum, so you sort of slam your body back this direction. But you're so you have to dismount, right? So you have to end your routine by letting go and flipping and landing on your feet because that's how the sport works. So you sort of like can't complete your routine if you can't do your dismount. Okay. So it's sort of an important part. What do you think is the difference between the high-performing gymnasts and everyone else? I think you'd be a little crazy, um, you know, because there's a risk appetite I think you have to have in order to sort of excel in gymnastics. But I think it's the ability to focus and the ability to fail and try again. And I think a lot of people get bummed out quick and a lot of people say, I'm never going to do this, I'm never going to be able to learn XYZ skill. And you, you can't stop, right? You have to keep pushing. And so I think that that willingness to just every day get back up and go and try again is really sort of what differentiates people. When I, when I look at your career, at least from the, the, the surface of it, it looks like it's been smooth sailing the entire time. I mean, it just looks like a rock star progression through a, the, the finance track. Um, has it been? No. <laughs> I, I think it's easier to make LinkedIn look nice and pretty, and everyone's like, oh, wow, that seems easy. Can I sign up for that? Um, no, not by any means. Um, I think it's been, I think I've been lucky. I think I've met a lot of great people along the way, and I think there's something to that, to finding the right mentor and in investment banking and, you know, getting in, having people invest in you to help you grow, because at the end of the day, you're 22 and you know nothing. Um, but no, there's been plenty of bumps in the road. I think that um, there's a lot of challenging personalities um, that you come across and as you navigate your way through your career and figuring out how to deal with those personalities and deal with the challenges that come from that um, is definitely something I would, I would highlight. Um, but no, Who's somebody who um, really thing. influenced you? And or when you look back on, on your life, you can say with a high degree of confidence, like, 
this one person in my career, maybe it's your family, but in this in the professional context, like they actually changed the direction of my career? That's a good question. I was going to say it sounds like you don't want family. But, oh, you I mean, do family. <laughs> I mean, we're not discounting moms, dads, brothers, and no, sisters. No, I mean, I, listen, I think it started, started off with the fact that I grew up in an entrepreneurial family. Um, my father um, had the opportunity to go to college to play multiple sports, but couldn't because he had to take care of his family. And he started working basically full-time when he was 16 years old um, and built many great businesses and did really well for himself along the way. But seeing that every day, um, I think, really drove my desire to do something entrepreneurial ultimately. But I think also drove my desire to sort of, you know, get exposed to a lot of different things within the financial services field in order to have more than one skill set. Um, so I never wanted to be sort of a one-trick pony. I, this, is, this is the only thing I know how to do. I always looked at every job and said, what else can I get my hands on? What else can I get exposure to? What else can I learn? Not just sort of live in a box. Um, and I think it was because I saw him sort of weave and navigate through his career and be an entrepreneur. And you have to be able to wear a lot of hats when you're an entrepreneur. What types of businesses did he start? And he started when he was 16? So he started working when he was 16. He bought his first apartment building, I think, when he was 19 or 20. Lived in the apartment building, renovated it. Um, and sort of went from there. So he um, had a residential construction company, built probably 500 homes. That was sort of his core business when I was a kid. Um, but he called himself a buck sniffer. A so, buck sniffer? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, he, where, you know, where's the next dollar? How am I going to make, make the next dollar to put food on the table? Um, and so... Do you think that he had... I mean, if he... What was it like growing up? Was there a period when, like when I was sharing with you, when he had the oh my God, we're living in 450 square feet and it's been here for a year and a half. My wife kind of hates me. <laughs> I don't know if my kids even like me anymore. <laughs> but I'll, I'll be locked in the closet and I'll be hammering away at work. Um, you know, what were the different chapters of your experience growing up in that entrepreneurial family? Yeah, I would say, A, it's 24-7, right? Work doesn't leave you. So, you know, work came home, work went on vacation, work went with us everywhere. And and candidly, I think that really prepared me to sort of do the same. I'm very similar in that regard. It doesn't bother me when I have to work on the weekends or at nights or whatever it might be. Um, so it was 24-7. You know, work was always present. But my dad did a great job of sort of integrating us in what he was doing professionally because he loved his, his work. And so I think it gave us exposure at a really, really young age to, like, what does it mean to build a business? What does What's a dollar worth? Like, what do things cost? How do you deal with problems? How do you deal with conflict with employees? Whatever it might be. I mean, it was at the dinner table. And, and it was always a sort of part of the conversation, which I think just gave me, I think, A, a curiosity and a desire to learn more about what it takes to build a business and, 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 and sort of scale it. But also, secondarily, um, what it's like to be an entrepreneur um, and, and sort of see that firsthand for my entire life. That's interesting because I've been thinking through with my wife, how, how do we teach our kids the value of money? Uh, what a transaction means, even at the most elementary level. Um, and also, like how to be entrepreneurial. Maybe they will become that. Hopefully they won't. <laughs> I don't know, we'll see what direction they go in, um, if they're rogues or not. Uh, but that, that's making me think, actually, like, what do you think are the characteristics of an entrepreneur? And it's, I think, because, and I ask that because so much of what we see in popular culture is the tech entrepreneur mm -hmm. and everything that's associated with that. But 
you know, you're an entrepreneur in finance, in private equity. What do you think are the kind of defining characteristics that you've seen from entrepreneurs in, in this community and from yourself? Well, I think Why are you an entrepreneur? I think initially you have to be a risk taker. Um, and so I think that's it, it sort of starts there. You have to be willing to take a risk, and I think most people aren't. Um, I think from there, it's a lack of willingness to accept the word no. Um, you know, and, and just that grit to sort of get up every day and despite getting a hundred no's, keep searching for that one yes. Um, and, and I think that applies whether it's finding capital, finding investment opportunities, fixing a business. Um, you know, we're constantly confronted with no, and I think a lot of people are willing to accept that in life. And you have to have that personality where that's just, that's unacceptable. What does no mean to you? How I'm going to come back tomorrow process? and ask you again. I, I mean, I, I think no means, no isn't a no. They're like, there's, what does no really mean? No, not now. No, not that way. No, you're not good enough at your pitch. Figure out a different way to explain it to me. I think that you can't be deterred by it. Uh, and I think at, at the core, every entrepreneur fails and gets up again and tries again. Fails and gets up and tries again. And figures out a way to make your story is the perfect example of that, right? Just continuing to try to evolve and reposition and refine to, to get something to stick. It's, I've just now been learning in the past couple of months in particular um, the meta skills of entrepreneurship. And what I've, I think I'm discovering is that it's less about the industry specific tactical skill because that could be, um, I think that's relatively commoditized. And I think it's more about the things that you're discussing, such as persistence, resiliency, and adaptability. Because whether you're with one business and you have the ups and downs, or one business fails and you need to go on to the next one, that that meta skill of entrepreneurship, of being adaptable, and understanding, like, it's almost like, I don't know if it's good or bad, but like, becoming numb to being punched in the face. Okay, I, I couldn't agree more. And just like, not liking it, but like getting used to it. Like, okay, fine. Um, that's, that's been one of the fascinating things that I've kind of experienced and observed through other entrepreneurs. But I'm, so you're, you're hitting on this point of no, but like, what no's have you experienced throughout your career? And how have you pushed through those? Good question. I've gotten a lot of no's when I've been interviewing for jobs before. Like what? <laughs> oh, I had a I had a hedge fund manager. I like to tell this story because it relates to my to my time as a gymnast. Look at my resume, and he was sort of like, "You're a gymnast. You, you you're all about perfection. Everything for you has to be perfect. You'll never survive as an investor because if you got sixty percent of the time you got things right, this was sort of a hedge fund model, so more that trading oriented model. You would be massively successful, and you'll never be able to deal with that." And, and, I, and I sort of said to him, similar to what I said to you earlier, do you know how many times I fell on my face before I got a skill right? Do you know how many times I fell on my head before I got a skill right? Like, literally. I mean, I, I say it jokingly, but, I, you know, gymnasts are the opposite of perfectionists. Gymnasts are, you know, the epitome of, you know, sort of persistence and, and resiliency and that ability to get up and try again. And he just looks at me and he's like, no. And I think it, the whole team wanted to hire me for this job, and it was a great miss. You know, I'm a big believer that sometimes there's really great misses in life, and, and you have to be able to look back and reflect on things that really hurt at the time it happened, but that you look back and you're like, wow, like, actually, I ended up in a better seat for me. Um, and, and, and I think that also is something I latch on to sometimes when you get a no. It's like you remember that sometimes the no's are really what you need. 
um, in certain situations because for whatever reason it, it's going to lead you down a path to something that is a better fit or a better opportunity for you. That's so powerful. It, uh, yeah. Wow. I, I would have I wouldn't have thought about that, but yes, you do go for a perfect ten. But how did you get there? Exactly. I want to see how many thousands of times exactly. that I fell. Exactly. <laughs> what are um What are some of the other um, impactful moments in your life that you found as defining? Yeah. So when I went to Michigan, I went on a full gymnastics scholarship, um, which was a wonderful opportunity, and I wanted to be a doctor. Um, and so I was pre-med, that was it, I had my life planned, I'm, you know, a big planner, so it was like I had my 10-year plan, I knew exactly what was going to happen, and I, I took an accounting class by happenstance sophomore year, and I just fell in love, and it sounds crazy to fall in love with accounting, but I did, it made sense, it was, it was numeric, it was formulaic, it was just so much more tangible to me than my chemistry class or my physics class, and I decided I'm not sure, maybe I don't want to be a doctor anymore. And I thought I wanted to be a doctor from when I was like nine years old. I had my, I had like the specialization picked out. I had my whole life plan. And, and I was like, oh no, it was the first time in my life where I was like, like, can I make a change? Like sitting there as a 19 year old, you know, now I'm like, I was crazy. And I'll never forget calling my dad and being like, literally crying and be like, dad, I think I don't want to be a doctor anymore. <laughs> I think I want to go into business. Like, is that okay? Like essentially asking his permission, like, is it okay if I apply to the business school? I think like, that's actually what I'd rather do. Um, and it was one of those moments where like I needed his support because it was scary. It, it, it sounds weird, but as a 19 year old, when you think you have your life figured out, the first moment where all of a sudden something changes, you're away from home. Um, and, and he was incredibly supportive and, and was like, I'm not surprised. Like, you grew up watching me, you know, do what I did. You started lemonade stands when you were kids. You sold Beanie Babies on eBay. Like, you've been an entrepreneur already and you're only 19. Um, but that was just a moment, like, I always look back on when I have to sort of deviate from maybe a plan I have today and, and say, like, how lucky was I to figure that out at 19? I think I would have been a terrible doctor. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, and, and then to have the support system to sort of be, put yourself out there, say you want to make a change, and have someone that's like, yeah, absolutely, go do it, why not? What was the dynamic between how you've been influenced between your father and your mother? So, everyone jokes on my dad's son. I have two yeah. sisters, and he has no sons, and so I was the one that somehow, you know, liked sports and loved learning about his business, and I was the oldest kid, too, so I think there's something about that. Um, so, my dad's always sort of been there for me from a sort of, you know, business perspective and a professional perspective um, and my mom stayed at home and she took care of us um, so I think from you know the example of how I want to be as a mother and the relationship I want to have with my daughter I think you know I, I, I pull on moments where she was driving me you know hours a day to get to gymnastics or traveling around the world with me to compete um, and really just she saw that I had a passion and she was willing to be there to support however she could. What is that as a, as a parent and kind of looking back at your career as a gymnast and what your family went through to pursue that, would you, do you want to do that with your family? And I'm, and I'm thinking about that also because I did the same thing with golf. Yeah. It's Thursday noon, get in the car, we're driving to South Carolina, we're going to go do a Friday through Sunday tournament. Yeah. And like my life was golf. Um, would you do that again, knowing what you know now, or would you have done a different model for, for the family? 
or for, what do you want to do for your family? Well, personally, as the kid who didn't have to sacrifice in the way she was describing, I would do it all over the same way. I had an, a passion for the sport that no one was going to get in the way of. I don't even think my parents could have stopped me if they wanted to. Um, it was just, it was what I wanted to do, and I and I loved every moment of it. Um, I always I always say the thing that I find the most sad in life is if someone doesn't have a passion. Mm -hmm. Because loving to do something just is, I think, such, it's a gift. It's truly a gift. So I wouldn't have changed anything about how, how, how I did things. You know, for my family, it's a good question. It's a hard question, um, especially with two parents working, demanding sort of professional schedules. You already have an element of that, um, and then you just to, to layer on that. I, I always say I want my daughter to lead. Um, I led the gymnastics thing. It was, it was what I wanted to do. There was no pushing it. So, you know, I, I, I think of it as I want to give my daughter as broad of a range of opportunity, and if she chooses to want to go deep in something, I'll be there to support her and, and make sure she has that opportunity. Is it, is it our responsibility as parents to make kids go deeper into something because we see something they don't, and we know that them playing piano, they're going to like it in 10 years? Yeah. Or is it allowing them to be curious and find their own way? What is that delicate balance that you found with your four-year-old? And also reflecting on your upbringing. You know, do we pull back and say, hey, you did that for two years. You've done 30 hours a week for two years. Kid, move on to something else. Trust me, you're going to like this model better when you're 27 years old and you did two years of tennis, two years of gymnastics, and then you went away from sports, and then you did two years of piano. Is that a better model than, like, when do we pull back? I think, as parents, the best you can do is try to give your kid as broad of a range of exposure as you, as you can. And then I think it depends on your kid's personality, candidly. Um, I think there's certain kids, like I was the kid that my parents didn't have to think about it. I, I, I did what I was going to do, and I was going to do it regardless of if they, if they thought it was a good idea or not. And I think there's other kids that need a little bit more of a push. Um, so I think you have to assess personality. If you have a kid who knows what they want to do, and is a doer, if you can let them lead, I think that could be a great learning experience for them to not have as much hand-holding. But I think some kids do need a little bit of a nudge. Um, and so I just think it depends on your child. But the exposure to me is everything. Yeah. It's exposure and being flexible. Yeah. And adapting, you know. I mean, obviously, if you feel like your kid's spending 40 hours a week doing something and failing out of school, well, you know, but it's time to step in. Um, so I think what, do you think, the, what do you think your kids' education is going to be like? like? How do you think the maybe during high school or college, do you think that's going to be very different from what we experienced? Do you think the model of education is working? And do you think, if it's not, do you think it will change? That's a good question. I'm applying to kindergarten right now, so. <laughs> For myself. Kids six months old. You know, I think that, well, for one, you know, I mean, it's starting off, I live in New York City, so my daughter going to school in New York City versus me going to school in the Midwest, I think, just in and of itself is, is different. Um, I think that schools are less about sitting in a desk and reading a textbook and taking an AP exam, um, which is the more traditional model, than, whereas today I think it's much more about finding a topic matter um, where you can explore it and really get to know it and learn how to learn and learn to have a passion for learning versus sort of memorization. Um, there's all, you know, listen, we all have to 
learn to read and do math and the basics. But I think schools are getting a lot more creative around making it interesting um, versus just this is the year you do U.S. history, this is the year you take biology, whatever it might be. And I think it will continue to evolve. And then you obviously have technology. How does technology play into how our kids are educated? Um, but I think it's more freeform and I think it's less structured than it used to be. I think it probably will continue that way. We have to prepare people to have the skills they need to eventually one day, you know, get a job, not just learn to memorize. Um, and I would say that we're going to have to teach soft skills a lot more than just technical skills because, I mean, at the end of the day, what can't be replaced? Relationships can't be replaced, right? Because I, I, I look back to my high school career, and like, did I need to take Algebra 2? And then when I was horrible at it. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, did I need to take Business Calculus in college? Which I failed three times. Um, but it, it, it kind of, I, I wonder about who, how I would be different if I was in an education system that allowed me to flourish as opposed to the traditional uh, system where you know, you're doing your AP English test mm -hmm. and you just suck at it or you, or whatever it was. And I couldn't go deep into what I really cared about. Um, there was that rigidity of a public school system yeah. um, as opposed to, but then I, but then I think back to that. I'm like, so much of who I am today is because I fought, I developed that skill of like being independent because I was rejected in so many different, like an academic framework. Mm -hmm. And because I was rejected from a consulting framework um, and other other endeavors, like that developed the underlying skill of persistence, yeah. resilience. So then I'm like, well, maybe they do need that rigidity and they, <laughs> they live, they live. <laughs> One of the topics I really enjoy talking about is just kind of the female and finance category because I've learned that... Uh, particularly the moms in this community, have just like this crazy superpower uh, to balance life, to balance career, and to keep on pushing forward. And I just learned about an incredible story, and I would love to turn it over to Callie to expand on this. Uh, so you're a mother, and you have a four-year-old. Yep. Um, please tell me this. Please tell us the story that you just shared. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so I have a four-and-a-half-year-old daughter named Arden, who's wonderful. Um, but, you know, I was in a situation where after I gave birth, she was born at like 5 o'clock on a Tuesday evening, um, I went back to work on Monday, so five days later. Um, my husband actually showed up to work, which was just a sort of a funny aside, and said, and they were like, why are you here? Like, your <laughs> wife just had a baby. And he's like, my, my wife went back to work today, so, so I should have had to do it. Yeah, so it was definitely a whirlwind. What was it like going back to work? five days after you gave birth? You know, it was, it's funny because it was, in a weird way, like, you know, what I was used to. So I think, like, a little bit of a coping mechanism mm -hmm. to, like, I'm a mom now, I have this, I have a baby, what do I do? Who, what does this mean for me as a person? I think that you sort of go through this big transformation when you become a mom for the first time and you have this whole other job that you don't know how to do, you don't feel comfortable in, and going and sitting at your desk and having a coffee and focusing on your Excel spreadsheet is like very like almost therapeutic in a weird way. I know that sounds like a little odd no, to say, yeah, yeah. Um, but it was what I knew. Um, and then there was the other part of it, and I've said this to, to, to other you know moms who are thinking about what, what they're going to do with maternity leave, um, that it, after the fact I realized it took me longer to recover than, than it, 
it, it would have otherwise. That like it was almost like I realized in retrospect what I was putting myself through. But at the time, I was just like, this is what I've got to do, so I'm going to do it. Was it hard just to turn off the work brain to say like I have to turn on the mom brain? And this is a this is a double time job, a triple time job. I mean, how did you? Who took care of your daughter? I was. Did you? I was did you bring her in? <laughs> It what? does. Once in a while. Five days old. <laughs> uh, a couple weeks later, maybe. Um, so I was listening. I was lucky my parents came and, and, and similar to your, your wife's parents, helped for a while. And that was, that was great. So I had a lot of support and resources from a caring for her perspective. Um, I'm not good at turning off my work brain. So I've had to learn how to like have a mom brain and a work brain coexist together, um, which requires a lot of multitasking. But... Yeah, it was it was um, an interesting experience to say the least. And one that so. you would wish on others? I would say no. Um, no, listen. Um, you know, you do what you have to do yeah. when when you have to do it. Um, but I think that you know, I always I always say something that's become really important to me as I think about women in finance and women in the workforce in general is figuring out how to bridge zero to six. So sort of when a child's born to when they go to kindergarten. And I think that's a time period where I see a lot of women take a step out um, because they don't know how to handle some of these things like maternity leave or care, you know, care for their child or, you know, there's just a lot that goes into zero to six because it's a lot more hands-on and your child's not in school all day and you don't necessarily have some of those resources to help you sort of bridge the gap. Um, and I think if we can figure out zero to six, it's really sort of a key to building a bigger pipeline of senior women in financial services in general, um, to keep them in the game. Yeah, one of the things I've, I think I've learned from the past vlogs with women in finance is that the funnel is actually quite big at the top, and then it's like at that mid-career point yeah. when it just drops off precipitously. Yeah. And one of my takeaways has been that the more people talk about it, the more it normalizes the conversation, which makes uh, women want to discuss with their employers like hey I actually like working here mm -hmm. I don't want to feel like it has to be a secret that I have to go out for six months or whatever it is um, but I just want to have this discussion yeah and I think you know that's that's my hope for this this type of content this community is that you know it does normalize the discussion so if people aren't having it bring it up no I think communication is key right because I think there's like a lot of assumptions around a woman when she gets pregnant, like, oh, maybe she doesn't want to work anymore. Maybe she wants to. Or I just hired her three months ago. <laughs> Wait, what? Yeah, yeah. And it's and guess what? It's not legal to talk about this, but it's also reality when you're when it is reality in the workplace. And it's I think it's actually I'll go in the opposite direction. Like, hey, I hired you for a reason because you're amazing. You're smart. You have the track record. Like, yeah, have a kid. Awesome. Totally. Because guess what? If I hired the right person at the right time, you're gonna come back. Yeah, that's right for you. I had a friend recently who got hired when she was, you know, three months pregnant. She had started interviewing before. She was telling people, and and she went in and she was like, "It's important for me to be transparent. You know, I'm three months pregnant. I'm due X date. I'm gonna need to take time off on my child comes. And they're like, "Cool." And they hadn't even hired her yet. But I think you know, I am always amazed when companies like really sort of lean into that conversation and say, yeah, absolutely. Go take the time, come back to your point. We hired you for a reason. And I would say even if she does leave after, because maybe it just turns out yeah. this is not where I want my life to go, whole career. Guess what's going to happen when she talks to her male and female colleagues? 
do you know about this firm like, and what they did for me? I worked there for three months after I came back from maternity leave, but they were incredible. And that positive uh, reputation spreads. Yeah, and I think focusing on giving time to, to both parents or mm -hmm. you know whoever, whoever they are exactly is really important because I think it's not just about you know, it isn't just about the mom. The mom obviously needs to recover, and there's a reason for maternity leave. But, you know, for the other parent to be able to also have the time, I think it just balances the playing field. And I think a lot of keeping moms in the workforce is, is also supporting the other parent to have more flexibility so that it's a two-way street. Like, I think about that with my husband. He has to make sacrifices that he wouldn't have to make if I didn't have a demanding career. And him having the flexibility to have to leave a little early because I'm traveling and someone has to get home to our daughter is just as important for me to stay in my career and, and push forward as, as it is to have maternity leave or to have other sort of flexible work arrangements. So it's got to be on both sides. You know, ideally, you know, there's two parents and, and both can pitch in um, to help, you know, get through that time yeah. period. It's, uh, it's almost like there's still that expectation like, all right, cool, your wife gave birth. Yep. You didn't. Like, why are you not? It's been two weeks, man. Like, why are you not back in action? And I actually had that, I had that um, wake up call for myself, you know, like our, our second child was born on Thanksgiving and I was like 72 hours later, I'm like, I should be, I should be back in action, what, what's going on here? And you just reminded of how difficult it is for the entire family to be going through that if you're doing a good job. Um, and being a present father, mother, being a present spouse, and doing it as a team. Absolutely. Um, I wonder what, I actually think that in with our generation, there's been more of an acceptance of people being remote, people being more flexible. What that means is people are also working later if they need to, and sometimes more on the weekends. You can't compartmentalize it. But I mean, my hope for like our firm is like that we have that flexibility. You hire the right people, they manage your things, they know when to get it done. I don't even know if I believe in vacation days. Like my colleague, he took Friday, Monday and Friday off to go play golf. He's like, okay, cool because I know that you work your tail off elsewhere. Yep. And um, I think that in our, our kids' careers, that there's going to be even more acceptance of having that flexibility because I think of the changing nature of work, and that is becoming more, um, you could do it anywhere. Yep. I make my money off of shooting video off of this and going around shooting video and then being marking, but we can do this anywhere. Well, if you create the flexibility, the fact that your work follows you doesn't become as much of a negative, I think. So you sort of need that balance, right? Because initially it's sort of like, you know, you can't, you have Wi-Fi on planes now. I mean, you can't ever escape. And, you know, so it's Saturday afternoon and, you know, someone could call you and you need to, need to do work. The counter to that is if you create the flexibility for people with young families or just flexibility in general. You create rules within that. Yeah, I think, I think so, but I think people, everyone functions differently, right? Someone might say, I need to leave at 5 to go spend a couple of hours with my kids before they go to bed, but, you know, I don't mind working Saturday afternoons to, to catch up, and that's actually better balance for me, whereas someone else might not have children and might say, you know, I want to head out early on a Friday because I'm going to catch a flight, you know, but I don't mind being here until 8 o'clock at night every night prior to that. I think it's if you hire the right people, yeah. that's really what it comes down to, because then... You can give them those flexibility. We're just talking about micromanaging micro, uh, <laughs> like micromanaging uh, processes as opposed to macro. Yeah. Are you hiring the right person for that function? They know how to execute that. 
if you hire the right person. And then how do you maximize the value they create? And you know, if you're micromanaging them, probably not.